We're starting the show, though, with something that I think came as a bit of a surprise, especially to those who saw the news, saw on social media that exemptions were in place. If you were somebody in B.C. affected by the flooding, needing to get gas, needing to get essentials, we were told on the weekend that you could go across the border and come back after making that short trip and not be subject to the PCR test. Well, we got contacted on this radio station by several people who said clearly that message didn't get to the border agents because they had been stopped and they were facing thousands of dollars in fines for breaking the rules. Well, today, a clarification from CBSA. And joining me to talk more about this is Denis Vinette, who is vice president of the Travelers Branch and COVID Task Force with CBSA. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. Hoping you can clarify a little bit on what's happening now. We got some very concerned calls to our station yesterday. People who thought they were following all the rules that were affected by the flooding in B.C., taking that trip into the United States to get gas and possibly other essentials and being handed a $5,700 fine when coming back. What was happening? Yeah, we'd really like to be able to clarify that. So since the onset of the floods last week, we had provided our officers on the front line, as had the public health agency, with some direction around how to administer some of the exemptions within the orders and councils, so the current border measures, as it pertains to those individuals who were affected by the floods. And so those have been in effect since last week. Over the course of the weekend, there was some further conversations that in light of fuel shortages, possibly groceries and, and other essentials in the province of B.C., that that should perhaps be broadened to not only individuals who are personally affected, but individuals from the province, because it would alleviate some of those pressures. And so the decision was made on Sunday, late afternoon, and was communicated publicly by the CBSA and by some federal and provincial ministers that you could travel to the U.S. to obtain these essential goods. And, um, you know, it's typically a short trip. It's your gas, it's your groceries, and you, and you return. We, our officers continue to apply the direction that, that they've been provided. And during this transition phase, regrettably, we didn't get the information in their hands so that their decision-making could change from the narrow application to the broader application. That resulted in some referrals to the public health agency and the issuance of some fines in, in uh, specific circumstances which is what, you know, clearly we've been talking about over the last two days. So was it a communication breakdown then? Because it seems like some people knew the the Canada Border Services Agency tweeted out on November 22nd that given the situation in B.C., travellers and essential workers who need to travel to or through the states could do so and they would have the exemption. It seemed like that information was out there. So what was the issue with getting it to and making it sure all of the CBSA agents as well as public health knew? Yeah, so it's making sure that transition period is always a bit challenging for us, especially one where you don't always have the luxury of uh, advanced planning because decisions are being made uh, relatively quickly. And so for us, it was about drafting and providing that information to our officers. We went out to them quickly to try and get them you know, re- uh, briefed up and, and ready to answer and address you know, this change in policy. But again, regrettably, um, it took some time to finalize that transition to this, if you will, broader application of the exemptions. And therefore, a few folks were unfortunately uh, you know, referred and subsequently fined for following uh, some of the advice and some of the uh, public pronouncements that had been made 
in re- in regards to the possibility of going to the U.S. and returning without the need for a uh, a PCR test for reentry on can- into Canada. But we did correct that. Yes, yesterday we did send out the new guidance. We made sure <clears throat> as soon as it came to our attention that we addressed it. We worked with the public health agency in both departments, issued revised guidance to make it very clear around how to apply the provisions on the exemptions. So what's going to happen with the people? I understand it's about a dozen or so that received those $5,700 fines. So we've been in contact with the public health agency. I can tell you that they're reviewing each specific circumstance to evaluate what may be done and the circumstances around the fines that were issued. And so uh, they would be best placed to be able to speak to what they uh, possibly will undertake in terms of any subsequent activity. There is always for the traveler who's received one of these fines, who under the guidance that is out there today and how it's being applied would not have received uh, such a fine, that there's a dispute resolution process. I believe it's articulated on the ticket that they received, so they can always avail themselves of that to raise the dispute in order to seek to resolve it uh, at a subsequent day, time. Uh, this might be a better question for public health, but one of the people that contacted us was one of that was she was handed the fine, but she was also then given a PCR test. Uh, she took a PCR test and she said that she was told she needed to isolate at home until she gets a negative result from that test. Is that still the case or does the clarification on the new rules exempt that person from that? And so, <clears throat> excuse me. Normally, what will happen is that if you've arrived and the CBSA believes you may not be in full compliance with the order in council, you're referred to the public health agency. If the determination is that, in fact, you're not in compliance, you would be directed to quarantine for the period. Also, take day one and day eight tests upon your return to Canada and entry to Canada. Um, and you may be subject to a fine as well. So all of these individual cases are being reviewed by the public health agency. And without getting into any particular case, they will, uh, you know, make the decision in regards to whether or not these folks need to continue to quarantine. They're the ones that have the authority to make decisions as it pertains to the direction that these travelers would have received at the border. So even if someone hears this today or gets this updated information that you that CBSA has been updated and they are the that there is the new direction that's now been given to CBSA officers, if somebody hears that and says, oh, OK, well, I fell under that, it would there was a, a communication breakdown. They just weren't up to date. I know I fall under these rules. I don't have to follow the quarantine rules that I was told. I don't have to follow this. It seems like there could be more confusion there as well. So certainly, the, as, as the public health agency reviews the circumstances of those who received those fines yesterday and were likely directed to quarantine, um, they may take some proactive action on their uh, on their own. But individuals can certainly seek out and establish contact with the public health agency as a follow-up to determine or not, whether or not they may be relieved from that direction that was provided to them by the quarantine officer at the port of entry. So can you clarify then to to make sure people know exactly what is allowed right now? Because again, even going by that tweet that went out on the 21st, I think a lot of people thought, okay, great. I I am affected by the flooding. We now have this province-wide limit on how much gasoline people can purchase. There are a lot of gas stations that have run out of gasoline. Who qualifies under this new direction that they can go into the United States for gas, for essentials, and come back without having to take that PCR test? So right now, the new direction that we've provided is that any individual residing in the province of British Columbia 
who travels to the U.S. for a short trip. And this is about getting gas and groceries. It's not about going to the restaurant and visiting friends or going to events. It's really in regards to accessing the necessities of life and returns, you know, in terms of a short trip, would be able to avail themselves of the exemptions of a requirement for a PCR test to quarantine and to be tested in Canada. It was very uh, targeted to those who were personally affected up until Sunday, and we've broadened it now, knowing that uh, any measure of procurement, in a, say, in the United States, will bring some relief to the overall inventory of both gas and groceries and other essentials within Canada while they're dealing with the flood. All right. That's that's great. That does clarify it and puts it to exactly what, what is allowed. I don't want to go into the, the really fine points of that, but I am curious because this could come up, something like this could come up, that if somebody falls under these requirements, goes to the States for that quick trip to get gasoline, maybe sees a mug at a gas station and thinks, oh my gosh, that's a great mug, I want to buy that, or that's a Christmas present, and throws that in the car. Is it possible a border agent could then look at that and say, well, Christmas shopping's not essential, you're not following the rules, you don't get the exemption? Yeah, so people should really uh, understand that what we're trying to do is provide some controls and some relief, if you will, at the border from these measures as it pertains to supporting the uh, broader efforts in British Columbia as it pertains to the floods. And so it is not about Black Friday shopping or Christmas shopping. On November 30th, there are some new relieving measures that will take effect where you will be able to go for up to three days without the need for a test upon your return. We would ask folks to leave uh, you know, any type of discretionary travel for events, for shopping, what have you, to beyond those days. And for right now, just to support the overall effort, uh, to attend to the U.S. if you are traveling there for those essential and those necessities. But I wouldn't suggest that, you know, in passing someone who picks up something that was available at a, at a particular stop, that our officers will be looking at that as Christmas shopping. Uh, a trunk full of Christmas gifts is a whole different uh, scenario, but certainly someone who goes down for gas, uh, groceries, and maybe picks up something at one of those stops, just have your receipts to the show to the officer, explain, you know, the circumstances of your travel as well as what you've purchased, and our officers will use that information to make that final determination. All right. And Denny, just to be uh, overly clear as well on something you mentioned, right now then with these new clarified guidelines, you don't have to have an address, say, in the Fraser Valley or somewhere that's underwater or currently uh, under evacuation alert. It can be anywhere in B.C., can't it? And as long as you can show it was a short trip for essentials, that's okay? Correct. That's the application and the direction we've provided our officers in terms of applying and uh, applying the, the exemptions in relation to the announcements that were made by both the uh, provincial and federal ministers on Sunday. All right. And while I have you on the phone, just to clarify something else as well, because you brought up the 30th when this changes and we go to that 72-hour trip where people will be able to do that and not have to get a PCR test. How will that be enforced in that it's one agency, the U.S. border agents letting people into the country, it's CBSA agents letting people back into Canada. Where is the enforcement? Is it that Obviously, you're supposed to tell the truth when you're at the border. But if somebody's been gone for, say, 82 hours and they say, no, no, I I was only gone for 72, where is the enforcement to make sure people aren't fudging the rules? Yeah, so under the entry-exit program at the border, we have a record of when someone left uh, the the country, both in land and in air, and we're able to verify that upon re-entry. So we'll be able to validate and verify how long someone has been away from the country and therefore... Uh, you know, if due to unexpected circumstances, person can provide an explanation, but people should really seek to travel 
for no longer than the 72 hours because we do have the ability to be able to verify how, you know, when you entered the U.S., how long you've been gone, and, you know, when you returned. Um, but it will be a great relief uh, for many folks who've been waiting to go into the U.S. for, you know, restaurant visits, to see friends, to attend to particular events. And so we're preparing to you know, issue our direction and have our officers ready to implement that in five days from today. And we can expect, I would imagine, because we've had more lead up to that, that there should be clarity at the border and hopefully we won't see what we saw with this order. Absolutely. And just to clarify, it's seven days from today. But absolutely, when we have the luxury of time, we prepare our direction. We actually brief and have uh, ongoing briefings for all of our staff in preparation for uh, the coming into effect of a new measure. And that's what we're planning for for the 30th of November. All right, Denis Vinette, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Appreciate it. Uh, Thanks for having me, Joe. Thanks for being with us. Well, there has been a lot of attention paid to electric vehicles, certainly a push to get more people out of gas-guzzling vehicles into electric cars and trucks. But the latest move from the President of the United States is also raising some concerns about parts of that industry here in Canada. And joining us to talk more about this is Flavio Volpe, President of the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. What do you think the biggest concerns are, or for you, what are the biggest concerns with the move by Joe Biden, by the United States, to get rid of tax credits, to kind of bring that industry back to within the borders of the United States? Well, I think you hit on it just there in your last uh, part of your sentence there, to bring the industry back in the borders. They're using a, a tax credit to discriminate against Canadian product, uh, Mexican product, and all the other import products uh, that come into the United States that is um, contrary to the WTO obligations and their, you know, their new NAFTA obligations. Uh, we make 2 million cars a year in Canada. 75% of those are sold uh, to the U.S. Those companies have been set up, uh, including American companies like Ford, Chrysler, Dodge, General Motors, set up in this country to, uh, to uh, serve uh, mostly the American Northeast. Um, but you know, all around uh, the country as well. And same thing with uh, American investments, uh, including others in Mexico. And so uh, if the President of the United States uh, and, and Congress passes a an incentive, a $12,500 incentive to buyers in the U.S. to buy uh, that can be only applied to American-made cars, it is, uh, you know, it's probably the worst thing... Uh, it's probably anything worse than Donald Trump ever threatened against the industry. And then you can imagine if three quarters of the cars we make are destined to that market, uh, how would the industry recover from it? And when we're talking about the cars and the specific components, uh, I didn't realize this, although it makes a lot of sense, that these parts, some of them manufactured in Canada, how many times are they going back and forth the way it is now, going back and forth across the border before that actual car is assembled as a, a whole car? Look, the Center for Automotive Research in Michigan, you know, which is a really top-notch uh, uh, thought uh, leader for the automotive industry, uh, estimated during the NAFTA negotiations that uh, a single part can travel across the border eight different times. And that's multiple borders, the U.S. northern border or the U.S. southern border, before it ends up in a car sold to a consumer. And so uh, we've been making cars together, especially since the Auto Pact in 1965, but probably going back to... You know, our original Ford investment in Windsor, Ontario in 1904 and uh, McLaughlin Buicks in Oshawa in 1908, 
only politicians and protectionist politicians, uh, you know, of all stripes uh, in, in all three countries, draw a border between the industry. Um, the automotive sector throughout North America is probably the most integrated sector uh, on the planet. And, uh, you know, they'll hurt themselves by doing this. It isn't uh, just a hurt on Canada and Mexico. American cars made in the U.S., sold to U.S. customers only, would never cross a border. If they don't cross a border, they're not subject to any of the trade agreements that guarantee American content in them. So if I'm, uh, if I'm trying to be more competitive in uh, the, the, the EV that I make for in Ohio for customers in New York, Kentucky, and California, I am now free to source more parts from uh, places that make great stuff, but cheaply, like China, Vietnam, Malaysia, and ironically, uh, Mexico. So they've left that back door open in their zeal to make the UAW, the United Auto Workers, happy in, uh, in Detroit. But it's going to backfire on them as well. And this might be a, an overly simplified question, but then why would it be okay for the manufacturers to outsource those parts to all of those different countries, but not from Canada? Well, what would happen is that if you're free from having to find 75% of your content from North America and that you can look all over the world for it, then what you're going to do, if you're going to change uh, where you buy it from in North America, you're going to look for the cheaper uh, option. And the cheaper option is always the lower-cost Asian countries or Eastern European countries where they have very good uh, world-class manufacturing and and, uh, uh, world-class companies and quality. And so uh, they wouldn't look to Canada. Canada Canada costs just as much as uh, the U.S. So they they would... Instead of picking a parts supplier in Michigan, and by the way, Michigan parts suppliers send $9 billion worth of parts into Ontario every year, you would look for something that's cheaper than that. And Michigan and Ontario, Michigan and Quebec, they all have the same costs. Have you seen this happen before, or have we ever had a scenario where, as you said, and I've, I've seen this in many places, that, that people are saying that this is worse than any of the measures that Donald Trump wanted to bring in and did bring in. Have you seen something like this that has pitted both Canada and Mexico uh, kind of on the same side, I guess, pitted them against a move by a U.S. president? Um, you know, Donald Trump uh, did that to us uh, every day, but it was a different uh, it was a different uh, process. So Donald Trump was uh, a crazy president making uh, threats into the wind while he was trying to extract better trade uh, terms in the new NAFTA. Um, Joe Biden is a rational actor using a congressional instrument uh, to look us right in the eye and say, I'm going to do this to you anyway. Uh, it's a. Um, that's the part that's unprecedented. I think that we all uh, expected. I shouldn't say that. Casual observers of the Canada-U.S. relationship thought that uh, that uh, a Biden administration would be uh, better for Canada. I mean, he may be a more decent fellow, but he's not decent to us from a business perspective. Uh, you mentioned as well, though, and uh, there have been uh, questions raised about whether or not this does or, or that the tax credit that we talked about violates the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement. Uh, how important is that or does that agreement play into what we might see happen in the near future? I think if we see it pass the Senate, and that's an if, uh, it, you know, it's a bit of a coin flip there and, and come into force. Uh, I think you're going to see immediate challenges by Canada and Mexico uh, within the USMCA. And the USMCA is, is very clear on uh, the fact that any, none of the three countries could discriminate against products from the other one based solely from their country of origin. 
but also, you know, we saw uh, two or three weeks ago dozens of ambassadors from uh, the U.S.'s WTO trading partners, Japan, Germany, Italy, France, uh, Korea, you name it, sign on to one letter to the administration that was reminding them of their trade obligations as WTO signatories and that they would uh, defend their interests vigorously. So we'll see a US, USMCA challenge almost immediately, but certainly the Japanese especially and the Germans are not going to take this and the Koreans are not going to take this uh, in stride. They will immediately launch uh, the WTO side as well. And what does it mean for Canada's industry as far as manufacturing these parts if they suddenly lose that part of the market or they lose that uh, that relationship with the United States? You know, all of this is, uh, is kind of a – the Americans are putting all their trading partners in a kind of a difficult space. Uh, they turn around and say, look, we, we've established rules for international trade. And within those rules, we've all agreed – to play fairly, and put that in quotes. Uh, you know, a lot of companies, of course, uh, countries put up non-tariff barriers to imports. But the but the Americans are asking their trading partners to join them in this quest to encircle the Chinese economically. And they're saying the real challenge is the Chinese and their system, both their economic system and their political system, is a threat to Western prosperity. Uh, that may or may not be true, but certainly the 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 way in which to get your your best allies uh, behind you on this is not to slap them in the face and uh, this is the way it's being received in capitals around the world uh, what it means for investment though is that even if we challenge them uh, uh, successfully through USMCA and WTO those things take a year or two or three in the interim all these companies around the world and all these countries around the world are going to uh, changing to electric vehicle mandates. Uh, they're all falling over each other and who's going to make more EVs when. And those decisions are being made right now. And if you have to make a decision right now on where to locate um, electric vehicle manufacturer to serve an American customer, you're probably going to say, you know, let me look at sites in the U.S. rather than Canada and Mexico. And we'll revisit Canada and Mexico when there's clarity. Which isn't good news for anybody in the manufacturing business in Canada with the uncertainty, I would imagine. Nobody I represent likes that, that's for sure. Uh, you know, then we also have plants that are um, currently manufacturing 2 million cars here. There was a Toronto Star report now two weeks ago that a big plant in Brampton, Ontario, just north of Toronto, that makes uh, very popular Charger, Challenger muscle cars, uh, Chrysler 300, that the replacement, the electric replacement announced by the parent company Stellantis, is very likely to end up in the Belvedere, Illinois plant rather than in Brampton. And, you know, you, you ask yourself that if that's the case, is it because Stellantis, this company that is now headquartered in Paris instead of uh, Auburn Hills, Michigan, is saying, look, we don't have enough clarity here, and the safe bet is, is to go to Illinois over Ontario. Um, you know, we're dealing with this right now, and, and that's a scary prospect for dozens of companies I represent that employ thousands of people who make uh, seats and infotainment and sensors and wheels and doors for that plant uh, in Brampton. All right. Well, Flavio, we're going to be watching to see what happens with this next. But thank you so much for taking some time today and for coming on the show. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you.
Well, what would it be like not only dealing with the flooding and living with the flooding that is happening in the Fraser Valley, but trying to work as a milk truck driver? Well, my next guest has been doing that for about 15 years. Darren Finlay joins me on the line now. Thanks so much for taking a few minutes with us. Hi, Jill. Hi. Thanks How are, for having me. Well, thanks for doing this. How are things going dealing with the flooding and being a milk truck driver right now? Well, to start with, you know, it's been absolutely heartbreaking and stressful uh, for the farming community and residents in the Seamass Prairie. Uh, they've been impacted severely and in some cases lost everything. So we're rolling through an area that's uh, been decimated and, uh, you know, tough at times just thinking about that, but then also not being able to get to some of those areas that we need to to uh, pick up the milk, so... It's uh, it's definitely it's uh, definitely extreme. And, and I would imagine too, as you've been doing this, I understand you've been with Vetter Transport for about fifteen years. So these are, are people that you know that you've come to see on a regular basis and have a relationship with as the the milk truck driver as, as well as the milk grader. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I've known a lot a lot of them for the whole of 15 years and some of them longer. Uh, I lived out in that area for about 19 years myself. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's devastating to, to know them and to, uh, and you feel for them at this time. It's, uh, it's, it's tough. Do you have any idea as far as the losses? I know that it's in the hundreds at least of cows that have been lost to this flooding. Do you have any idea kind of uh, of the damages or what we're looking at there? You know, I don't have any of that information. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of privacy issues when it comes to the producers and the uh, and this industry, um, rightfully so. Um, I do know there are losses, uh, definitely, and. Uh, like I say, I use the word extreme with a heavy heart uh, because they're they are people that we know and uh, and having seen some footage and and in talking to some of our uh, producers that we know, yeah, there has been uh, loss that some can't come back from even so. What's it been like for you then, even trying to access the various farms and the various parts of the valley that are flooded? Uh, you know what? It's just, uh, in my experience, you know, along with many of my coworkers at this time, it's just been a lesson in exercising patience, uh, extreme care, uh, and working together with our operations team with a little more attention to detail, uh, just to get through the constant changes and challenges being faced trying to get through you know there's water that you have to get through but then there's certain times when i mean i I can give you a story i came back from days off last week uh to the thick of it uh uh, met up with my trainee who's uh just getting into the industry and uh and then uh, we contact our our uh one of our operation supervisors who is out in the field uh piloting piloting ahead for us to uh make sure that it was safe for us to get through to uh to a few of our farms and uh you know it's it's without i mean without these people and without the people behind our desks and our dispatchers and operations team um it's such a big team effort to even get to the farms that we can get to um 
and uh, so it has been. Uh, there's been obstacles in the way, but uh, we've done everything we can to get to everyone that we can. And what are you seeing then as far as uh, we're getting uh, some people calling in here saying as the roads are opening up and it's single lane in some places and it's still treacherous in places, uh, there are some people that aren't driving for the conditions, which could make things even more dangerous. Are you seeing that or are you kind of putting it out there, reminding people that it's it's not business as usual? Yeah, you know, Jill, I've spoken to a few other mail callers. I I generally am within a very localized area of the Abbotsford area for my pickups and deliveries. Um, and I've spoken to a few other mail callers that uh, are within the fleet. And due to time sensitivity and inability to wait for long durations, they've told me that they hope that the general public abides by the state of emergency orders mandating these essential travel uh orders only on selected highways and and uh they have seen you know folks hooking up their boats to go fishing and still traveling on those ways and really at this time you know to keep uh the food on the shelves uh whether it's processed or raw we need to get one way to uh to the production plants and you know those production plants are putting out processed food that people need on the shelves in the interior and now that that highway's open it would be um greatly appreciated that the public understood that uh, they want uh, to be able to go to the grocery store and grab that food. And uh, that's what the essential travels for. Uh, not just us, but a, a lot of other uh, food haulers and, and things of that nature. Right. And hopefully uh, people will get that message and understand the importance of that and staying off those roads unless, of course, it is uh, essential travel. Uh, how difficult is it for you as far as timing? Because I understand, too, with the the, the difference, even though some of the roadways are open, it's still taking a, a lot longer to get from point A to point B. Yeah, I mean, if we are hauling a time-sensitive product that needs to get... Uh, freshly delivered to to be processed so um i haven't had any issues myself but i do know that uh throughout the province there has been uh, quite a bit of um delay for for certain drivers and routes and whatnot so uh having the highways be deemed essential travel only is is uh is particularly good for them because they need to just be able to get to point from point A to B uh, as timely as possible and safely as possible, obviously. So yeah, that's. And and finally, I just wanted to ask you as well, do you think, or or what impact do you think this is going to have on milk production and on the milk supply? Again, that's one area that I couldn't speak to uh, just on the fact that uh, those numbers aren't given to me. Sure. Um, I, I have worked in an operational role for Vetter in the past, but at this time I am a, a bulk tank milk grader. Um, and we, I mean, there's going to be some impact, but I don't know the, I don't know the particulars by any means. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. I know it's, it's a busy day, but thank you so much for joining us. And I hope all the operators and the farmers know that they have the support of British Columbians and hopefully there is financial support for them as well. But Darren, thanks so much for taking a few minutes to chat with us today.
Yeah, and I'd, I'd just love to send a quick shout out if I could. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to the uh, to the milk marketing board, feed haulers, freshwater haulers, because without those people, the cattle would not be able to eat that are needing the the, the uh, food and water that they need. Uh, veterinarians, Ministry of Agriculture. Last but definitely not least, the dairy producers and citizens in the area that pull together to help each other despite the severe challenges and obstacles, all of whom, without their combined management, response, and hard work, could have had an even worse outcome during this. So it's been essential that everybody's worked together. It's pretty amazing.